Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Good morning. Welcome to Medicine on Call. I want to um, change gears on my show today. I have a very special guest, Dr. Susan Derry, who's coming on to talk about something that is kind of a a unique topic, um, nurses who become physicians. I think on the show we talk a lot about how the healthcare system works, how the corporatization has changed the doctor-patient relationship. But we never really talk about how the doctors and the nurses interact with each other. When I was a medical student, it was a collegial atmosphere. We learned a tremendous amount from the nurses, especially as as medical students. I mean, they were the front line. They were the ones that went with us all the time, the ones who called us in the middle of the night, the ones who were the closest to the patient in terms of patient care. And it was a team. Over the past 10 years, I think there's been a change in the um, interaction. I think there's been a concerted, a concerted effort to make us, to pit us against each other and to pit doctors, patients against doctors. And I, I wanted to have somebody on who actually knows the inward, the inside and out of this thing. Because it's like, unless you've gone through it, nobody really can talk about it. And Dr. Derry, I want to thank you so much for coming on because you have a wealth of information. And I think it's something that people really need to understand and know about. So once again, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be on and try and help kind of educate a little bit if I can. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. You were, how long did you practice as a nurse? Uh, so I had become an RN, and I worked in the emergency department only. I never worked in any other environment. And uh, I, gosh, I think it was only a few years before I, uh, it, it actually was just a scheduling situation, really, that made me kind of trying to look for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really had no awareness of hierarchy in nursing or hierarchy in medicine, um, but I, I had uh, started to work in a uh, hospital that you bid into individual shifts, and so the schedule was just absolutely brutal, um, instead of it being like a schedule that you bid into. And uh, someone told me it would be like eight years before I could get something that was more decent uh, and livable, and it really was just destroying me. And so someone had mentioned that I should maybe consider going on to uh, being a nurse practitioner. And so I looked into that. I didn't even know what it was, even though we had them in our fast track area, but I didn't really know what it was. And so a few years later, I um, started uh, school at a pretty good university, and they were ranked number four in the country at the time uh, for nurse practitioner programs at the Oregon Health Science University. Very strong curriculum. Um, and that took a couple of years. And at the same time, brought home my small children and um, and was also working um, to, like normal. Um, it's pretty typical of nurse practitioner programs that you can you can work. Um, a lot of people even work full time. There's a lot of variability, especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went, there was uh, a lot less variability in how you could get the NP education. 
Uh, and then I started working as an NP, and at some point, um, a few years down the road, I realized that I really didn't have uh, enough background to be doing what I was doing. Um, I had become an NP in a, in a state that had completely unsupervised independent practice. And I really didn't have the knowledge base to be completely independent like that. Mm-hmm. And and I went to, like I said, one of the top programs in the country, and I'm, I'm pretty, you know, self-educated. I've bought several textbooks that I read, and it just, but it's just and, uh, you know, the education is what you make of it. So even in my own NP program, the clinicals I arranged myself um, as far as if I was interested in something. So I went and shadowed someone in orthopedics, and I went and shadowed a little bit in radiology because I knew I liked the emergency department and that I might need some of those skills. But there was nothing set as far as a standard curriculum other than a certain number of hours, um, and then there had to be a certain number of hours that were uh, family medicine, um, and I guess a little bit of uh, time following a midwife as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of kind of how I became an NP in, in a nutshell. Um, but when I, when I realized that there wasn't enough information for me, was also coincidentally at the same time that the NP world was discussing in the journals and in, in academic settings, uh, discussing creating a new degree to be called doctor clinically. And I had a real problem with this because I was a really traditional nurse. I really loved the role of being a nurse. And I actually had pride that nursing has its own sciences. Nursing science is, is real behavioral. It's very much psychology and sociology mm-hmm. and helping people cope. Um, and it is also very much, you know, following instructions carefully that a physician has ordered. Um, and I saw very much separation between the two professions. And so as an NP, it bothered me that something might be coming along that would be just pretty much it looked like to be called doctor. And that was the DNP. And the reason they were discussing this was even though there, there was already a doctorate level education for nurses, there was already PhD, and that's what all of our instructors were. Mm-hmm. They all had done traditional PhD. And that, that education is very much like uh, a doctorate in other, uh, you know, college level majors, such as history or sociology or psychology, and that, that there's thesis and dissertation, and it takes many years. Um, uh, the difference with this DNP, once it was created, I looked at the curriculum, I thought, okay, well, I, I know I need a, more clinical training. I just am hungering to learn more, and I'll look at it, and if there's more, then I'll do it. And I looked at the curriculum, and it actually only had, like, more theory and more education uh, background, like how to teach and um, advocacy, there really was not any additional clinical time from a master's prepared nurse practitioner curriculum. And I just, I just thought, wow, that's a lot more time and money just really for a title change. It really didn't change what I would do on a day-to-day basis. And I wasn't comfortable with that at all. So I thought, okay, am I, am I still young enough to try and get the additional coursework done and apply and get into med school, and I decided to go ahead and try. Mm-hmm. And so it took a few years because 
the basic sciences are so different uh, for a nursing pathway than for a medicine pathway. I actually went to the same university that I had done my undergrad nursing in. And so I could very easily see, it was literally in the same building for chemistry that I had done as the nursing chemistry, which is, you know, numbered differently than the chemistry for chemistry majors and medicine. And, you know, it's just more rigorous. So I had to go back and do, even though I already had a master's degree, I went back and did chemistry over, had to do physics, um, and had to take the MCAT and apply and get into med school. There was no path, no, you know, kind of shortcut from being an NP to being a physician. And I definitely looked. <laughs> uh, I was I was hoping for some kind of shortcut as much as I could uh, because because honestly, as an NP, you're taught that you know almost as much as a physician. And, and I feel awkward saying that now, but that's really what I was taught was to believe that I was just as good and knew just as much and don't doubt yourself. And that becomes important because that's the opposite of how we train in medicine Mm -hmm. and in medicine I then learned how important it is to continually question my thinking and to continually you know second check and you know almost doubt if I'm on the right path for a diagnosis or a treatment plan especially with critically ill people you know Mm -hmm. to really take opportunity to always rethink and question and we do that even in our the way we train with rounding and having to present and, and the way faculty are taught to question you know, residents and students in a way to get you to think and question yourself. And I, I found that very, um, very interesting to reflect on when I then went back, you know, as I got further in my education and started comparing and thinking how different it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a huge thing that the, really the most... Uh, I don't know if it's frightening is the right word, but for me, it took a lot to feel okay about it. But when I, as I was going through medical school and learning all the basics of pathophysiology of every disease, and and really knowing that there, yet there was more. You know, in, in medicine, that's how we learn is is to be aware that there's even more, there's even more, there's even more, mm-hmm. and that patients present different than the textbook 100 percent of the time. You know, that, that you're just going to be, look, look for them, the body to be tricking you, you know? <laughs> and, and then to become aware that there was so much more to disease processes than I had even remotely learned as an NP actually frightened me. And in med school, I had to kind of come to a process of being okay that I didn't know that information back when I was an NP. And there may have been things I didn't know. You know, and, and that I might have just not even recognized illness in someone because I didn't know it existed. And, and that's the biggest difference right there is that as an NP, I was taught the common superficial uh, illnesses in a certain spectrum. And as a, as a med student, you're taught the entire breadth and depth of medicine um, so that you've ever heard of it and you might recognize it if you see it. So that was kind of my my pathway to realizing that there was such a big difference. And, and even, you know, in early med school, I, I had looked, you know, I'd asked permission to, like, you know, maybe get out of the physical exam coursework because I'd already had that as an NP. And then I'm so glad they didn't let me because I've, I learned so much more and I became such a better clinician 
mm-hmm. uh, with, with a year-long full course. You know, I, it was good. And so I, I'm glad that I didn't find a shortcut that I was looking for in the end. You know, that's just a, such a fascinating journey. It's, it's kind of like you didn't know what you didn't know until you started the process. Exactly. That is exactly it, and I often say that, is that um, that is the problem, is that the ignorance to what you don't know when you're practicing as an NP because you, your window is narrow. And it's just like when you're a child and you have, you know, your fixed reality of, you know, teacher lives at school. You know, often kindergartners have that kind of a belief system that they know that because that's where they've seen teacher. Mm-hmm. And they can't think beyond that boundary because they, they never figured that out or learned that. Well, on that, on that note, let's, let's take a break. And I want you to flesh out a little bit more of what you just told me. We'll just go into a couple more details. I think it's just the patient, um, the listener, sorry, can actually understand and get a, a good working relationship about what you mean when you say, it was, you just, you didn't feel comfortable or it was something that you didn't, when you were treating patients, you didn't understand. Let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're talking with Dr. Susan Derry about her journey from being a a nurse practitioner to becoming a physician. And before the break, you were talking about when you were when you were a nurse practitioner seeing patients, what is the thing, if you can pinpoint it, that made you, that gave you that, that's, that twinge that said, this is not, I need to know more, I don't feel comfortable. Is there a specific patient, I mean, obviously you can't tell us who the patient is, but a specific scenario that made you question what you were doing? Sure. Yeah, and I think you probably heard me talk about this before. Um, uh, This is, you know, I guess things kind of build up in you gradually until some point, you know, something sort of makes you think, wow, there's something more here. Um, And I would say it was a case, uh, a patient when uh, I was letting them know that they had high blood pressure and I wanted to prescribe them a medication. And this was a very uh, astute person that would ask questions and wanted to know more and asked me why they had high blood pressure. And I couldn't tell her because I had learned, you know, that there was high blood pressure that kind of just occurs uh, in some people, but I didn't really get the pathophysiology in in nurse practitioner training uh, as far as why, what happens in the body to create hypertension. And that's what she was asking me. She was wanting me to tell her physically in her body what did this. And I couldn't explain it. And I, I had to tell her I couldn't explain it to her. And then she kind of said, okay, that's, that's okay. Because um, we were in an urgent care setting and she was going to be following up uh, anyway with someone mm-hmm. else. And, and then I let her know that I wanted to prescribe her her medication. And so she asked me how that medication worked. And I could not explain the mechanism of the medication. And, and I, was, I was a good NP. This wasn't because I wasn't a good NP. <laughs> this was because it's not part of what you learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's high variability in NP training programs. Um, you, you know, what one person learns is so different from what another person learns. So easily an NP can hear me say that and say, oh, but I learned, you know, mechanisms of medications, for example. Well, okay, but you might not have learned 
looking at x-rays at all. But I did a little bit of time looking at x-rays because I was worried that I was going to be in an urgent care setting and might have to look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, nowhere near what we did as physicians. But, um, but that's the problem, is that, that there's a huge variability in what you may or may not know. We are not standardized as nurse practitioners. There is no national standardization as to what your base knowledge is. And that is very distinctly different than medicine. And that's where medicine doesn't realize that NPs don't have enough education. Because most physicians will assume that they have a standardized education just like physicians do. And for physicians, you know, it is, it's the same. All med schools are basically gonna see, teach the exact same information because there are so many high stakes tests along the way that have the exact same content. Um, and that's the hugest distinction right there that I could even think of. Um, and it became abundantly clear to me uh, when I was taking care of that patient and couldn't explain what was going on. I thought, I, I'm not comfortable with that. That was not okay with me. I felt like I wasn't doing the right thing by the patient to not have the full information, and I needed more. So that's, that started the ball rolling for me. Well, I can understand that. And so I'm just to clarify from my own personal question, there's no board certification. I mean, we have to take three parts of a board in order to be eligible to really go into a residency. And then after you complete your residency, to be board certified, you have to take, I mean, pre and T, two more, an oral and a written. The oral itself was like, I don't know, all day. The written was eight hours. So it's like five rounds of testing. The nursing, the nursing profession doesn't have to take an, uh, a, a national board exam. So it's very different um, from medicine, and it is very unfortunate uh, that uh, in the nurse practitioner realm they call it board certification, and that means something completely different mm. than it does in medicine. Um, in medicine, you know, we've done all those basic levels, which um, I'll kind of walk through, and and then the board certification is actually sort of extra on top. Right. And so we see that as sort of a, an extra achievement, meaning you become an expert in your subspecialty. Whereas for nurse practitioners, what the training is, is you go to college um, for that program. And I, I can only speak to mine because, you know, they're very, you know, you can look up different schools and they'll have completely different patterns of how they go through the process getting endpoint of education. Um, and for me, it was basically not much different from what I did for undergrad classes in nursing. And then I took classes and, you know, took little tests. And, and then at the end, you were done. There was no big test at the end of school um, other than when you then wanted to get your license. Um, some states required that you take one of the national exams, um, like the American Nurses Credentialing Center, ANCC, I believe was the exam that I took, Mm -hmm. and they do now call that board certification. It was one, I just actually found my my, uh, score sheet the other day, I was going through files and found one. Um, It was only 175 questions, and um, it was, I hate to say this because I don't want to denigrate it in any way, but it was straightforward enough that there wasn't a review book um, there wasn't, you know, whole courses to review the material. Uh, I walked in and I took the test, and, and I scored nearly, you know, very, very, very high. Um, it was not a challenge for me to do that. 
in wow. contradistinction, <laughs> um, the many high state stakes tests you undergo uh, to become a physician is is actually it's almost unbearable when you're doing it, <laughs> and it's unbelievable when you try to explain it to someone else. So, um, as, as most physicians will recall, with pain. Um, so the first test, you, you know, the, the other thing is with physicians is you can't pass each step, each section without passing that test. Exactly. And so, uh, so the first one is step one, and it's during medical school before you go into the clinical environment. And step one was, I believe it, it was eight hours, if I recall correctly, and I think 450 questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all try to kind of block that from our memory, so if I'm <laughs> off on a little bit, that's it. But I know it's all day because uh, our medical school tried to help us learn how to test for an all-day test by, in my particular medical school, all of our testing was um, mixed together. So we didn't take a separate histology, separate microbiology, oh. separate anatomy physiology. Instead, at the end of eight weeks, we took one big uh several hundred question exam so that we would be used to the endurance mm-hmm. of our testing methods. And it would take, we had a four hour window to take our exams. And I remember the first time I took that in med school at the end of a block. And it's a good thing there was a week off between blocks because I literally just crashed on my bed and I had such a horrible headache and was so exhausted, physically wiped out from taking that test. And I just didn't know if I would make it back, you know? <laughs> it was so exhausting. And then interestingly, as you get through medical school, that first two years of really hardcore learning, uh, you know, then I was more capable of taking those longer tests. It, they really did grow that skill into me. Um, and then, so then when you take step one and you're doing the eight hour test, you somehow survive that. Um, and then uh, and then while you start your clinical time is a medical student, um, your clinical years are actually not just clinical. They're in no way, shape, or form shadowing, and that's important as well. Is medical students are given responsibilities, um, but it's graduated. And um, I see that sometimes. I, I, I want medical students to be protected and cherished and loved and nurtured because it's a hard journey, and you're learning as much as you can, and you're hard on yourself. And we need to just, you know, protect them from anyone that might denigrate them or give them a hard time because what they're doing is trying to learn everything <laughs> at once. Um, and then they go and take step two. Um, and step two currently is a written test and there's also a clinical skills test where students currently have to fly to one of five regions in the country. And it's, I particularly say fly because I was in the Midwest and had to literally fly to LA to take a test. Um, and it's actually a, a, a fake clinical setting mm-hmm. where you have to go through clinic and prove that you can do a satisfactory, you know, history and physical. It's all observed, 100% of it. You're critiqued on every single piece of it, uh, making an assessment and a plan that would be correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is nationally standardized that every single medical student will undergo that. And you just don't get to go on if you didn't pass that. Um, and then sometime after you've completed medical school, and I believe it's either in your intern year or, you know, sometime shortly at the end, you know, there's different recommendations, I guess, on when to take it, but you had to have completed medical school. Then you take step three, which is ironically the easiest test. Um, most in medicine would agree is, is uh, step two was more on diagnosis, and that's a 
big piece that we need to talk about too as mm-hmm. far as the difference in how we diagnose in medicine and in nursing. And step three is plans. And so that's the one piece that um, is easy for us because that's the real, I would almost say, cookbook part. Once you've come to the difficult part of an accurate diagnosis, you know, choosing a medicine or a follow-up plan is not as hard. Um, and so that's a one-day test. And after you've done everything else, it does seem quite a bit easier. Yeah. So, so very distinctly different in how much testing there is and how standardized it is. Let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. I just relived my 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 medical school year after you told me that story. I remember studying eight hours a day for about guess, six weeks. Mm-hmm. We had like five people who would get together and we would go over the material, mm-hmm. and it was a group. And it was really and it was you were just in the trenches together, mm-hmm. and everybody had a skill. One person had a photographic memory. One person had to be right all the time, so they'd look up everything. Somebody had great notes, and it just came together. And that's, I mean, it was, it was work. And you didn't even realize how hard it was until you just made me think about them. I can't believe I went through all of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's something that you, once you've done it, you feel, you, you kind of have that respect for what you don't know. I mean, it's a practice. Right. It's not just a profession. Everything changes, and you have to be up on it and willing to continue to learn and willing to admit that you to yourself and your patient sometimes that you don't know what the answer is, but you're going to find out what it is. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's um, that's one of those things that making a diagnosis it, where, where we're definitely different than the nursing base. And to me, this is the part where it becomes um, concerning in that you know, I was very proud to be a nurse, and I still am very protective of nurses, and I love my nurses that I work with, and, and they know it. They know that I respect their, you know, judgment and decision-making, and when they come to me with a concern, I'm very aware, you know, and I, I immediately want to listen and pay attention to them because I trust that, you know, I know the skill set they have, and I trust that they're bringing me that concern because of their skill set, um, and, and yet they're not taught to diagnose. 
you know, that's not, uh, that's not a part of nursing at all. In fact, there's something called nursing diagnoses. And this is flo- sort of a little-known thing. I don't think most physicians are aware that there's something called nursing diagnoses. Mm-mm. And they are, they're, by definition, they cannot include a medical diagnosis because that's medicine. And that's really important when it comes to nurse practitioners who, on one hand, want to say, oh, but I'm just a nurse. I don't want to be held to that standard of care. And yet they're utilizing our medical diagnoses now. Hmm. And that crossover is where there's not a lot of strength in the education. In that, as a nurse, you don't learn how to diagnose. You don't learn how to identify certain diseases. And all those clinical years of being a nurse, you learn how to care for a human. You learn how to comfort them, bathe them, you know, recognize when something's off and bring it to the attention of the physician um, and, of course, follow orders. Um, but nothing in that time would be the same as a medical student learning how to diagnose. And that's important because NPs will say that they rely on their nursing education and that that is what they feel makes them actually equal to physicians is that time. And a nursing diagnosis is things like alteration in comfort, um, alteration in urination, and that's pretty much what you can say. So if you have a urinary tract infection, you could the nurse's diagnosis would be alteration in comfort, um, dysfunction in voiding, because they can only have alteration or pain response uh, or dysfunction. That's how the nursing diagnoses work. That's what a nurse is to do, is to respond to the patient's response. It's not a diagnosis. And then all of a sudden as an NP, there's diagnoses, there's physician's diagnoses, and but there's not the same process of learning how to develop a differential diagnosis where you, you know, list out and think of the most serious things and the most life-threatening things along with the most common things and also what you really think it might be based on your experience. Mm-hmm. Instead, it really is more of a, this sounds most like uh, the few things you've learned about, you know. Um, it's much more of a, uh, does it match this kind of pattern? What it, you know, does it, if it looks mostly like bronchitis, then it's bronchitis. So. Wow. You know, that, that's a huge jump when you think about the Affordable Care Act, the, the age of medicine, the Affordable Care Act, where, you know, the, especially on the hospital side, and even in private practice, there's been a changing of the front line of healthcare, where it's a lot more nurse practitioners mm-hmm. who are, like you described, some in some states, totally autonomous. Mm-hmm. And really, the doctor comes in and signs off or co-signs something, but never really takes the, the, the lead on treating and diagnosing and examining the patient anymore. Mm-hmm. And the way the system is working, it's making it sound like that's okay. That's appropriate, and this is this is this is adequate health delivery. Right. And the doctors are a problem. You know, we cost too much. We want to order unnecessary tests. We're the problem. And there seems to be a concerted effort to sideline us, but also from a media standpoint, to I would say demonize doctors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've noticed that there's been a campaign that the nurses care. 
and that the doctor, well, by, de by default, the doctors don't. You know, it's a, it's a great PR campaign. And now you're really fleshing out what the differences are between us because this is not an adversarial thing. This is just patient care. We need to take everybody's egos out of it. It's not about who's better. It's about what's the, what's the best thing for the patient. Right. And you're just describing a system that if I were a nurse and I were doing what you did, I would feel the same way. I would feel, wait a minute, I just, this is just kind of outside of my scope. I don't really feel comfortable. Have you spoken to any nurses who've, who do feel the way that you did? And I know you did something about it, but what's the, what do your ex-colleagues feel about this? So I, I do work in a practice with um, several nurse practitioners and PAs, and um, I live in an independent practice state, but the model of how our workflow is in my work group is, of the ones I work directly with, is we are in a supervised environment. Um, we work together, and uh, basically with, with triaging patients, uh, you know, we, we are sorting people that may have minor complaints that they can see completely independently, mm -hmm. um, but we work side by side in that we are real time uh, being that person that uh, they can come to, and as, as soon as they ask me about a patient, I'm seeing that patient. Um, and we're, we're going through the case much like uh, when I was a medical student and resident, and that they're going to present the case to me, kind of tell me what they want to do or what their question or problem is, mm -hmm. um, and then we, we figure it out together, and um, I see the patient and direct the plan at that point in time. That seems a lot more structured. That that's I, how I it's really supposed like to it. work. Yeah. Yeah, and I think they do too. Um, I I know that um, they tell me they like working with me because I I will listen to them. I will help them, and that that really does come from a place of having been that nurse practitioner that mm -hmm. couldn't get a physician to listen to them either. And I think that comes from physicians believing that, especially I'm in independent practice states. Um, that, well, the nurses say their education is equal, it must be. Well, and it's not, um, but you don't know that. You know, as a physician, you're thinking, if they're letting them do the same job that I'm doing, essentially, you know, practicing medicine on people, then surely they had the education and it was just different. But that's not the accurate information. Um, and so I couldn't get, you know, sometimes physicians to help me out if I was worried about a patient. And that's for various reasons. You know, there are, there are physicians that don't believe there's a role for nurse practitioners in medicine. Um, I obviously have a nursing heart at core, mm -hmm. and I do believe there's a role uh, for nurse practitioners in medicine. But I really, based on my experience, I have to believe that it really needs to be a supervised role and that really ultimately there should always be team-based practice and that a physician should be the one making a diagnosis, let's say in a family practice panel. A new patient should be seen by the physician so that they can make sure diagnoses are correct and kind of get things in place. Mm -hmm. And then I believe a nurse practitioner then could manage ongoing, you know, follow-ups and, you know, checking on labs and that kind of thing. But, um, but I'm, I'm pretty concerned that we're now in independent states, like you said, um, we're seeing people who are not even allowed to access a physician, that they're being told by the insurance company that their primary care is a nurse practitioner, that there's no physician attached to their chart or any visit they ever see. And I'm worried about especially older adults that may have unusual medical problems that may go undiagnosed because if, 
if the NP hasn't ever heard of it, um, how are they going to figure it out? And, and medicine really is clinical. You know, you really need that, that history and that physical. That's the biggest part of it, relying on your years of education. That's how you make a diagnosis. The, exactly. the labs and testing just confirm what you believe. But I see it done a different way from the nurse practitioners, and this is where the cost is different. So physicians really rely on their clinical judgment to help them make the decision, and testing will back it up. But there's actually studies that show, Mayo Clinic did an interesting study um, showing that nurse practitioners overutilize referral to specialists. And this is probably because of a lack of close relationship with the physician and having the patient then follow up with the physician or just not wanting to look like you didn't know what you didn't know. You know, you don't, you don't want to be embarrassed that you didn't know something. And I, I think that's a real problem. I think we need to encourage the NPs to be open to the fact that they don't know everything, mm-hmm. um, just like we do in medicine. You know, um, you know, routinely I will call one of our specialists and say, you know, remind me what you want us to do for this um, because, you know, this, this is fading in my memory of, you know, X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't denigrate each other for that because we need to do that. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of culture for nurse practitioners to look like you know what you're doing and to not look like you don't know what you're doing. Um, and I think that's the potential to harm patients, um, that, that confidence level. I agree. Or in some cases, maybe fear. On, on that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. You know, before the break, Dr. Jerry was talking about really getting into the nuts and bolts of the, the structure of the healthcare system. I love what you guys are doing in your in your clinic because that's how I thought the allied health professional, you know, added addition was supposed to work. It's collegial. Everybody's talking. The doctor makes a, you know really is in, integrated within this, and then the allied health professionals. I wouldn't say it's bad. I don't want to put it this way quite, but pick up the slack or actually fill in the patient care. And the fact that it's pretty much uh, people out on the limb by themselves, and the fact that, I mean, the hospitals are really involved with this at this point. I think this is about money. Uh-huh. It's a cheaper delivery of the healthcare system to get a better back-end, you know, make, you know, keep more money in the system. But you just described something that I always thought was the case. More tests are ordered, more consults are ordered, now, again, it benefits the hospital because the more consults you get to bill the patient, but it's not better care. I've gotten consulted on some crazy stuff, earwax removal in a hospital because they didn't have an otoscope, all sorts of crazy stuff. And I just and you have to go. You can't say that's a ridiculous consult because you'll be a disruptive doctor and so on and so forth. So is there anything that you can think? think of that can improve the system? Are we at a crossroads where we can pull this back? Or is the IT, health information technology phase that we're in, going to doom us to people on the front line punching in numbers and kicking out diagnoses? 
Yeah, I, I agree that the, the costs are skyrocketing, and it is partly because of the, the change from relying on physicians who are, are critically thinking about if something is needed or not and using a test for confirmation versus uh, the MP method, which is, it is a lot more testing. There's a lot more labs and imaging ordered, and that's proven in literature. Um, there, there is literature to support that uh, mid-levels will order more diagnostic imaging. That can be very, very costly, particularly when we're talking MRIs and CTs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they might not be needed because you, you don't necessarily have to have all that high-level imaging to make a diagnosis. You might not need it for the planning of procedures and that kind of thing. Um, so, and I, I also, I definitely agree that it's, uh, that is hospital driven. The, the, the key here is, is there's a fallacy that physicians cost more uh, because, because really the salary of a physician is for the complex decision making. That's what it's for. And a physician does not get paid on what tests they're ordering. It's paid on your complex decision making. And so to not pay for the best skilled person to make that decision making, you know, that's where they're kind of trying to cut the cost. Mm-hmm. And so you pay a lower hourly salary, and that's only in some cases, because now in states like Oregon, there's pay parity. That means that they legislatively uh, got the state legislature to require insurance to reimburse nurse practitioners the same as physicians. So they're, getting, they're making the same pay, but not with the same capability. Wow. And the thing is, is that with ordering all these extra tests and extra images and everything, that does make more money for hospitals and for insurance companies because they do bill the patient um, based on that. So the ordering of those things makes them money, whereas paying out for a quality decision maker costs them money. Um, and so that's where the cutting is. Um, for, the, for the improvement of the cost of health care to the patient, which is, by the way, who matters, um, that's where we need to look at the impact is what is this costing our patient? Right. And, and you, you would want to have the highest level thinking and someone that could critically determine if tests were needed instead of just getting every test that you can get for that topic. I'm, I'm convinced that this whole Watson movement is a way to increase or enhance the treatment of or using mid-levels to be the front line of care. It's as if you want to remove the, the critical, critical thinking side of healthcare, the doctors, the people who know the most. I mean, it's just we've trained longer, we've trained different. You're able to get people to do whatever the hospital wants because they don't know what the difference is. There's no argument in that situation. Right. They've already tried peer review, so that's shut up a lot of folks, doctor side. They've, I think that they're... Now, I mean, I know that the government is going to start ratcheting down their um, reimbursements to hospitals, and the first casualties, I believe, will be the doctors. So the, you might be making a decent salary now, but God knows you're working for it. But that's about to go. I think that's going to come down dramatically. But there's nowhere to go because you have a covenant. You can't practice. You've sold your practice to the hospital. You've right. got basically a captive audience, and I think doctors are going to retire in droves. I think that's one of the reasons why we're having the 100,000-plus doctor shortage, among other things. We're going to lose a lot of folks, and they know they need to pick up, you know, have someone to, to step into that breach. I think this is what they're going to try to do. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, there's, there's definitely 
a move toward replacing. The, the problems with that are the, the distinctions in training are bigger than just that knowledge base. Mm. They're also in how a medical student and then resident is acculturated to really owning the care of their patients and that they are they're mentally on it 24 hours a day. And when you have a family physician, they are reachable. You can get them by phone. Uh, when I try to get after hours uh, an NP clinic, they are not on the phone. You can't get them. Um, it, it's, it's a shift mentality, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and physicians, you know, don't do that. You know, we, we aren't <laughs> done till the work is done. Exactly. Um, and then some. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure how to recover it other than to get patients to realize there's a distinction. Um, you know, and, and the, the things that are so difficult is that for a patient, um, you know, what they see on the surface is the optic that they know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a TV physician looks just as smart because they're wearing the white coat and they're carrying a clipboard and, and they, you know, talk like they're a doctor. And, and then even better if you are a nice person and, um, you know, you're likable. And, and we all know that that likability is really important in a, in a patient-provider relationship. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that that's how patients mostly judge their physician. It's just based on did they talk to me and were they nice to me? And then also a little bit on did they give me what I wanted? And we're in a culture right now where we do kind of get everything we want right away. You know, we all have, you know, Amazon Prime and, you know, different ways to sort of get our needs met instantly. Yeah. Um, you know, we won't, wouldn't even tolo, tolerate a dial-up connection now. You know, if you remember those days with the modem beeping and everything. Um, you know, it's, it's nothing is fast enough. And we want fixes right now. And unfortunately in medicine, there are lots of things that we either don't have an immediate cure for or it's not appropriate. And I think the antibiotics are the best example uh, that I see sort mm-hmm. of an excess antibiotic prescription from mid-levels. And part of it is that's a patient satisfier. And right now, the government billing scheme is such that we have to have high patient satisfaction or they will dock your clinic and hospital. And so the driver uh, for a lot of things that are done now is based on will the patient be satisfied. And there's studies that show that having, you know, VIP medicine, you know, very high, highly satisfied people because we're doing special treatment for them, it's actually more dangerous. And that's because you're taking away that that decision maker's protection of what is safe and right, although you might not like it, um, but you don't need the antibiotic and steroids. Mm-hmm. You know, this is viral and it's gonna go away. I'm sorry, you're gonna be miserable for a week. You know, that's, that's sometimes the answer. And too often I see that it's more considered acceptable um, in what I'm seeing in local patterns. Um, you know, that there, there will be NPs that will just give antibiotics and steroids, you know, together um, for what they'll call bronchitis. I recently had a case where it was it was a, actually a named virus that we could test for mm-hmm. that the patient had, and and you know part of it is on the patients in that um, sometimes patients are really still wanting and and expecting an antibiotic when they came in because they they came in and they had to pay for a copay and they sort of want to go home with something. And what I hope to instill in people is an understanding that what you're going home with is hopefully an accurate diagnosis and an education about what to expect. And if you didn't need something, then that's good news because, you know, it's not as, it's not as serious. You should be able to get over this, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but they're, they're, in our culture, we do kind of expect a thing in our hand. Um, and, and that's something that we kind of have to adjust our thinking for as well. I think that's a really good point. I mean, from the doctor perspective, I mean, what do we need to do, in your opinion, to educate our patients that, I mean, part of it is the time. I think doctors have lost the ability to spend time with the patient because of the volume that's needed. But is there something that you can think of that we can, as a, as a profession, re-educate the patients that, about what we do? I don't think people know what we do. And everybody's now a doctor, so it's equal. And I mean, it's a kind of a loaded question. But the insurance companies are telling patients that we're the same, that just because the word doctor is used, that it's equal. Isn't that a false advertisement? Is that, is that really setting the patient on the right? It's, it's, it's false. It's, I don't know. It doesn't seem right. It, 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 I don't feel it is right. I mean, it sort of does a disservice to everybody. Um, you know, it's the important thing is realizing the patient has to come first. And that is a big part of physician training is that we, we sacrifice oftentimes our families, um, many years of our lives to put patients first and to try and do our very, very best. And um, with, with the amount of time that goes into that, at the same time, we aren't taught uh, any business classes or any uh, advocacy or advertising skills unless you happen to have had an undergrad with something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see the opposite with the NPs. I see that that's a big part of what they're taught to do is how to promote themselves. Mm. And, and physicians are so busy saying it's all about the patient that we would never want to really promote ourselves. You know, that, that just seems not right to us. Um, but I, I'm not sure what to do because I feel like there's, a movement of some people to to kind of give everybody equal standing. You know, it's, it's sort of the trophy culture almost. Mm-hmm. Um, is that you know, not many people want to go through that hard challenge. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll sometimes hear people say, "Well, if I wanted to go to medical school, I would have." Well, I don't. I don't know because the odds of getting in are so slim. I mean, I know some really bright people that um, have to put in some pretty aggressive work and do post-backs and all kinds of additional things to make themselves look good enough to get into medical school. And that journey and that struggle, that's just not known. You know, publicly, it's not held in high esteem Mm -hmm. uh, to become an expert anymore. Um, And that's what a physician is. A physician is an expert in patient care. And I'm not sure that that's of value anymore to our society. And it should be. Because, yeah. I mean, you have a few things. One is, is your health. And at this point, we have a system that's being monetized mm-hmm. and corporatized. And the fact that the life expectancy has dropped over the last two years, I think should give people pause about everybody being equal, everything, you know, everything's awesome. It's not. And so this is the time, in my opinion, to take a step back and see the, 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 the medical workforce and what they're allowed to do and the scope of practice, all of that now needs to be examined before we get into a position where you don't have any experts left. I mean, the medical school numbers are dropping. The residency spots are, you know, there's thousands of doctors who don't have a residency because they don't have enough spots. Right, that's a a huge problem. Yeah. They, since, you know, I think 2001, there was a call to increase 
you know, physician training, and so medical schools increased the slots, but the federal government put a cap, a freeze, on graduate medical education. That's residency, and you can't be a doctor and practice medicine Mm -hmm. without that additional time as a resident, and um, so there's no new slots. So there's all these, there's this big problem with an excess of medical students now. They graduate, they are doctors of medicine. And they can't practice medicine because they don't finish a residency. And we really need to fix that. We need more residencies. We need to value that training process and recognize that it's, it is the finishing. It is the completion of building a master of care for human. And we're in an era where the complexity of medicine and, you know, the severity of illness is just higher than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. We have much more complex patients at the same time, we're getting pushed to try and say that someone with less education can manage all this much more complex illness. That's a mismatch. At the same rate that it's a mismatch of, you know, saying we need more medical students, but then not providing the back door to get the finished product out to the community. Thank you. Know? you. You're absolutely. It's it's a self fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Hey. Right. On that note, we have, we have like a minute left, half a minute. How can people get in touch with you? And, and do you write a blog? Is there anything that they can do to reach out to you and learn more about what you're doing now? Oh, gosh. I wish I did now that you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really have anything um, set up like that. I really, um, I guess I just kind of have spoken out where I felt that it mattered. Okay. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have anything set up like that. i sorry. Um, but, you know, perhaps you can pass things along to me if there's uh, something that someone reaches out to you. You know, I think it was, uh, one important thing I want to say is that I do really value nursing in general. I consider it my core. And I do value nurse practitioners and PAs, and I believe there's a role for them. I just, I think it's important for us to realize and recognize that, that there really is a difference between these 600 hours of training that I had as a nurse practitioner. I had 600 hours of clinical hours. And as a physician, it's more like 17,000 hours. So, you know, basically it's less than 3% of the education of a physician. And I just, that's the distinction I'm seeing in, in, within myself. And I, I know that lots of nurse practitioners will be offended, and I don't want them to be, but I do want them to kind of look at themselves with a mirror and also say, maybe I should reach out um, and have a have a physician that I can go to um, for advice if they're, you know, in a state that's unsupervised practice. Dr. Derry, we have to stop it there. You have to come back so we can finish this, this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are very welcome. Pleasure to talk with you again. Thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.